and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? Uh, Tyler, happy five-year anniversary. And you as well, my friend. Um, hold on. Am I doing the math right? Yeah. Yeah. It's episode 260. Yeah. 52 times five is 260. That's right. So this is our five-year anniversary. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I should say, it, you know, you asked me how I'm doing. We're recording this only a couple days after we recorded 259, where I said that I was I was sick, and I think I I, I hope my coughing didn't come uh, come across too much in that episode. But I am still getting over the sickness, and as usually happens with me when I have a cold, as I get better, that cough lingers. Yeah. So I I I do have a, a pretty monstrous uh, cough that could terrify pets and children. So um, and what's I apologize inter- in advance. And what's interesting is that <laughs> if, uh, if listeners are upset by the cough, the next few weeks are going to be rough for you because we're recording <laughs> several episodes in one day to, to make up for my being yeah. uh, gone in, in, to New Zealand. Yeah, by the time you're hearing this, and assuming you're listening to it the week it went up, Tyler is in New Zealand. I am. Uh, hobnobbing with the, with the Kiwi. Hobnobbing with the Hobbits. <laughs> yeah. um, we will be stopping uh, in Hobbiton. I'm very excited. Um, yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm travel often stresses me out, but this I'm very excited about. Um, partially because I helped plan the trip, and I'm not usually much of a planner, but helping to like you know not helping, but actually like picking out the hotels and stuff. I now have a visual on where it is I'll be staying, and like one of the one of the you know cheap motels that we'll be staying at is on a lake, and it's g- surrounded by mountains, and it's the most beautiful thing ever. And it's this super cheap motel, and I'm like, ah, oh, New Zealand. So, and uh, I'm very, I'm I'm very excited, and, I, and like I said, I will be uh, meeting a listener, and mm-hmm. that's going to be exciting as well. But I, I I wanted to get back to this five year thing, mm. and take a second. Uh, you know, we have a topic, of course. It's episode 260. You can probably surmise what the topic is, mm-hmm. uh, even if you don't look at um, your, uh, I don't know, iTunes, iPod. Yeah. Um, it's an artist profile. We'll get to that. But I want to take a second to celebrate five years and to thank, I think, uh, some of the people, uh, mostly fellow podcasters and, and maybe a couple other organizations uh, who have uh, been been with us or helped us out or had us on. Um, I think, um, first and foremost, uh, I want to thank, uh, even though this is a long defunct podcast, the guys from Hudson and Gaines, mm-hmm. uh, cause those were friends of mine who were doing a podcast to, and, and, and Craig Gaines was, uh, very helpful to me and Micah, uh, Micah actually in technical ways, very helpful in getting us, uh, getting us started and giving us advice on, on doing a podcast. I, um, want to go out of my way here to thank uh matt belknap jimmy pardo and, and pat francis mm-hmm. um from from never not funny um they you know jimmy mentioned us on episode i don't know uh, around 53 yeah so fairly early on yeah. um I mean, very early on for us even fairly early on for them um and um pilar alessandra from on the page uh getting into um, the film thing, I want to thank uh, Dave and Devendra and Adam 
and Peter uh, Serretta, you know, for hosting slash film mm-hmm. on his website. But the guys, specifically Dave Chen, Devinder Hardawar, and Adam Quigley uh, from Slash Film Cast, uh, for having us. Um, I want to thank the guy, uh, people from the Turner Classic Movies podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to thank uh, Ryan, James, Travis, and Rudy from the Criterion cast. Uh, I mean, now, and now Rudy and West from the Autour cast. Yeah. Um, uh, who else? Who else am I missing? Who, who has helped us out? Um, have the, we mentioned uh, Goble yet? Uh, Paul Goble, definitely, yeah. definitely. Actually, I mean, uh, we've become something of we've become regulars on his on his podcast. Yeah, uh, Paul and Jim and Tom, and that's been very rewarding. And uh, it, it, I mean, that, that's that's actually a great example of what this podcast has done for us, and and the and the website that you know. Uh, over 10 years ago, you and I first having moved to Chicago, not really knowing anyone in Chicago besides each other and mm-hmm. occasionally not even liking each other. But what we had was Comedy Central and things like Beat the Geeks. And we would watch yeah. Beat the Geeks regularly. We didn't have a lot of friends uh, or things to do in the, in the evenings. Yeah. So we watch Beat the Geeks all the time. And the fact that we not only know, but are, I think, safe to say friends with uh, Paul Goebel, the TV geek from Beat the Geeks, yeah. is... Uh, uh, pretty awesome for me, and and just various guests that uh, we've had on. Of course, we're thankful to everybody that has been our guest, uh, even if it's even if it's just friends of ours that are you know just social friends of ours. Sure, just like Frank P. My Wrath McGrath, exactly like him. Um, nobody of note, but still uh, a friend. Um, but either way, like people taking their time out taking time out of their day to come and do this like yeah that that astounds me and and you mentioned you know when we would watch comedy central 10 years ago and you know we watched all kinds of the comedy central presents and and as we've mentioned like many of our favorite comedians at the time have been on the show Mm -hmm. and have been incredibly gracious and very supportive um, people like Sean Cullen and Bill Dwyer, and mm-hmm. it's uh, and Jimmy Pardo again. Someone Jimmy used Pardo, to watch yeah. at that time. And so it's uh, it's been somewhat surreal uh, at times. Um, Jen was watching; she's been catching up on Thirty Rock, and she just yesterday was watching Fatem's first episode. Uh-huh. And when he shows up, she's like. That's weird. And I said, why is that weird? She's like, it's just weird to be seeing a guy who fairly regularly hangs out in our living room talking with with Alec Baldwin and Tina Fey. And and then when we were watching the Oscars, and uh, now this is a little different, we were watching the Oscars and uh, Matt Champagne kept showing up in commercials. Yeah. And then... Uh, He's in three commercials that are in regular... Yeah. He's... He's the guy with all the shit on his lawn, so the garage, the car can have his own place in the garage. Yeah. He's the husband and the asshole couple who are ahead of everybody because they have their fast new phone. Right. And now he's uh, the guy who thinks his Fiber One cereal tastes too good to be healthy. I don't know if you've seen that one. I haven't seen that one. That, yeah. that must be a, That's a new champagne. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and it's just been, it's been really great, and... I also wanted to single out a couple people that know us 
first as listeners, but then also went on to sort of champion the show, uh, I'd say, namely Ian Brill and Colin Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, and Colin hosts his own podcast. Um, he, it was Marketplace of Ideas, which we were on together. It is now Notebook on Cities and Culture, which we have both been on. I don't think mine's gone up Yours yet. Yours hasn't, hasn't gone up yeah. yet, but uh, we've both been on separately. Mine is available, and yours... By the time this airs, it might be available. It's possible. So yeah. we'll, we'll try to post something uh, once yeah. yours goes up. Um, so, yeah, we, I mean, we did a whole episode about what the podcast has done for us uh, around episode 250. Um, so I just wanted to take this time to thank these people and to thank um, all our uh, all, all the people who contribute to the website because that's been uh, – 2011 was really a big year for the online, you know, written content – uh, wing of Battleship Retention. Well, just for the the brand in general, like our brand really expanded, and it and it and it came to as we've said before, like mostly as a function of our bloggers and the blog in general. Battleship Retention has become the thing that we wanted it to be years ago, and sort of scratched the surface with with the podcast, and then and then it kind of exploded with, with the website and our Eventually, bloggers. Yeah. I remember, I remember talking when we were about a year and a half, maybe into the show about the idea that the podcast would just be one arm of what it was, what it was. And that, mm-hmm. that we would have this, this website. And, uh, um, it took a while to, to get there. Um, mm-hmm. but we eventually, and it was basically because basically because we dragged our feet and were busy and stuff. Uh, yeah. but we were the, uh, yeah, 2011 was a good fifth year. So yeah, Kyle, Scott, Matt, Jack, Daniel, and Josh, and occasionally Jason, mm-hmm. um, and others. Well, yeah, uh, newer contributors like uh, Aaron and Patrick. Yeah, uh, West has contributed. Rudy has contributed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, by the time you hear this, you'll have something from Rita. No. Um, I'm sure we're missing someone because we've had lots of people contribute yeah. to the website. But yeah, we're going to have a. a several new writers and uh that'll be exciting and uh, it'll be hard to juggle but that's all right that's for your benefit listener and reader um oh, i also yeah. want to say before we get into the topic your thing about like watching the oscars or watching 30 rock i last night rewatched for the first time since theater since the theater saw in full there will be blood mm-hmm. and i remember when it came out we were less than a year into the podcast, but as comedy nerds, we knew who Paul F. Tompkins was. So yeah. that one scene early on, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Plainview, Mr. Plainview, we lose nothing by gaining or we gain nothing by losing our heads. It's my favorite line <laughs> in the movie now because uh, Paul F. Tompkins says it. But I remember thinking like, oh, I know who that is. I'm thinking that was cool. Yeah. Now I can watch it and go, I know that guy. He's been on my podcast. Yeah. And that's uh, that's pretty cool. So, uh, yeah. do you miss anybody else? Oh, the uh, Sound on Sight uh, had had yeah. had us on Kate and uh, Kate. Josh. <laughs> Josh, yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we, I mean, we've been guests on on various podcasts, and and so if more than I actually remember at the moment, and so if I if we've forgotten your show, I apologize. Um, I do. I I kind of wanted to single out the ones where we've been invited on several times, and mm-hmm. and. They've just been very kind to us, not to imply that if we're not mentioning you, it's because you weren't kind to us, except that one. You know who you are. <laughs> and so um, – You've and, been on more than I have. I think, I, I think I've named every podcast I've been on. Oh, come now. I'm sure you've been on at least two more. Oh, well, uh, yeah. I guess we were both on the Benny South Street Chronicles. There you go. Yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, you've been on some more stuff. So and people, it's, people, uh, people like your your mellifluous voice. Is that what it is? Uh, it's it's something. Yeah, all right. It's not my voice. It sure is something. Um, and by the way, I don't mean to. As we're thanking all these people, it's not like a victory speech. We haven't won anything. We've been on five years because we haven't stopped. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But at times, it can be somewhat disheartening to do this thing that doesn't pay, and for a medium that is not really recognized yet. I mean, I, I'm surprised how many people I still need to explain, like people our age and younger, by the way, that I need to explain what a podcast is. Well, you hang out with weird church people, though. Well, that's true. <laughs> what? That's not These what I'm referring to. These people aren't in, 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 in the world the way that, that us uh, secular pop culture-based people are. They, they, don't know any, they don't know any music uh, apart from the, the their, that doesn't exist in their hymnals. Do you guys have hymnals, or is that a Catholic thing? Uh, no, I think some churches okay. have that. But uh, it was fun watching you try to pull first, like, I don't know any Christian artists. Uh, hymnals. <laughs> you know, you I think gone hymnals like, was a funnier pull than uh, Michael W. Smith or whatever. There you go. DC talk. Um, yeah. but, uh, I once uh, worked the spotlight at, at a Michael W. Smith concert. Really? I had to train the spotlight on Michael W. Smith for an entire performance. Now, how did you... I'm trying to think how you could have used just a spotlight to make him look foolish, as I have no doubt you wanted to do. <laughs> but uh, as you're doing now with me, um, I don't know. It's uh, I'd, I imagine you'd have to kind of think outside the box with that one. Uh, no, I, I, I'm not going to get into the Michael W. Smith thing because that's probably for the best. Because I've never, I didn't actually, I never actually knew that. Oh yeah, it's uh, nothing. Uh, Okay, you know what? No, he did it. Th- it this was in 2000, maybe 2001. Okay, past his prime. And, uh, yeah, he he dedicated a song or said a song was inspired by the girl at the Columbine shooting who, you, you know the story. Like, oh, yes, yes. Do you believe in God? Yes. And the guy shot her. And I just think uh, I have trouble with turning someone in a victim of that uh, senseless um, a massacre into mm-hmm. a martyr. Like, I don't think she, I doubt that, uh, you know, teenage girl would have chosen that moment to die for her beliefs if she had the choice. Uh, and so I find that kind of thing insulting. I'm not sure if I'd find it insulting. And I mean, when asked that question, there's probably in that situation, there is the possibility. It's like, if I answer incorrectly, mm, this could be bad news. Now, here's the, here's the thing. The truth of that story uh-huh. is that she was left alone once she answered the question by one of the shooters, uh-huh. shot later by another. Oh, so it wasn't... So there you go. Michael W. Smith is even further a douchebag in my book. Well, I don't know if I'd call him a douchebag, but it, it, that is widely acknowledged uh, that that's what happened. She's, she was asked the question, and then she was killed. It was not a cause and effect thing. But a lot of my fellow Christians hear that, don't 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 want to look into it, and honestly, like don't feel like they should. I don't know how I found out that it's not actually real, but um, and some people find that to be very inspiring because it could have been easy for her, whether she was killed as a result of it or not. When you're asked a question by somebody with a gun in your face, you have to know like there could be consequences to the wrong answer, and the fact that she answered honestly not totally knowing what the person might want to hear, 
Um, I think there is a, some bravery to that. I'm not sure if I'd go so far as to say it's a martyr thing. Yeah, yeah. no, there's definitely but, bravery. But yeah, and so if so, if somebody is inspired by that, and if they are legitimately inspired to create something, even if it is a Michael W. Smith song, <laughs> um, then uh, then I do not, I don't begrudge them that. That's, um, see, people can be inspired about what, whatever they want. That's a good point of view, and maybe it's my just natural like sort of pessimism, or, pessimism or cynicism. But it's the reason that I, um, I, I I start from position of um, skepticism with any Holocaust movie as, as oh, well, yeah. because I, I I feel like taking something, taking an uplifting message home with you from something like that is mm-hmm. almost disrespectful to the people who. Uh, died, especially go back to this thing. They didn't choose to die. Yeah, it, you know they they didn't make that choice to become martyrs and, and holding them up um, as a representative of a cause or, yeah. or, or something like that's why you know I never liked Life Is Beautiful and uh, stuff like that. And I do like part of it because I think it makes it specific enough uh, to these <laughs> character stories. But oddly enough, when I think of my favorite Holocaust films, which is a sentence I never thought I'd say. Um, the ones that I like are the ones that are very specific, and they don't make it quite so easy. For example, the pianist. This guy, like, his struggle is not necessarily a noble one, but it's not a, it's not crass either. He's just surviving. That's it. Yeah, it's. Uh, He's not surviving on behalf of his people. He just wants to live, and that's it. It's very empirical. There's, yeah. there's not a lot of spiritualism to the pianist. And, right. Uh, I, I do like that, even though I don't entirely love that movie. Did you see the Counterfeiters? No, I didn't. Oh, you'd love it. That's but a I, good one. I tell you the one – there's a, cu- uh, a couple others. One is called Adam Resurrected. Which I need to see. Which That's is a Paul a, Schrader? Paul Schrader, um, who we should profile at some point on this show because I love him. Um, and maybe the best performance of Jeff Goldblum's career. And I don't say that lightly. He can be a very good actor like in The Fly and such. Um, and Earth Girls are easy. Have you listened to – oh, what's the other one? Uh, the other one is a Tim Blake Nelson's film, The Gray Zone. Which I also haven't seen. You look at those two movies, and you, and I won't go into the specifics, and you see, I mean, it's called The Gray Zone, and it's because there is a great deal of uh, gray moral area. And you watch it, and it's like, this is probably a lot closer to what the Holocaust was. Really complicated, morally, and it's not quite so cut and dry. It's cut and dry in the sense that, like, well, what the Nazis did was evil. I'm on board with that. <laughs> but like, but like, what what a victim would be willing to do to survive or save his or her family? You know what I mean? Like, at what point? Yeah. As opposed to like, well, I could martyr my family for all of these people who are going to die anyway, or I can sell these people out a little bit who again are still going to die, and maybe save my family. You know what I mean? And so like, I, I like that. It's oh, like they're that. fast. They're fascinating films. Um, real quick, and we'll get into the topic. Have you listened to Paul Schrader's commentary on Last Temptation of Christ? No. You have to listen to it. But I wonder what you'll gonna, think of is it. Is that going to ruin that movie for me? No, but it might ruin Paul Schrader a little bit for No, he's very intelligent, but he is kind of, uh, and even admits to being glib about Christianity in the in the commentary, referring to it at, at least once, if not multiple times, as a blood cult. <laughs> I mean, I guess technically, if you want to look at <laughs> yeah, it, that's that way, a, he yeah, and that's he makes a good case for it being a blood cult. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, they're they're like, it's not totally unlike the Eddie Izzard thing, where uh, where you know Jesus is talking to God, and he's like, "Well, I had uh, I had you know this thing where I said you know if this is my body," and he's like, "What? That's cannibalism." He's like, "Did you say anything else?" No. 
well, all right, I did say that you should drink this. It's my blood. It's like, that's vampirism. <laughs> and uh, so. That's funny. All right. That's enough. Happy fifth birthday, us. As we, as I said, it's episode 260. All episodes that uh, whose uh, number within the title uh, ends in the number zero, um, except for big deal things like 50, 100, 150, 200, 250, um, are uh, profile episodes. Mm-hmm. So we got to move along because we're doing other podcasts today and people are coming over to discuss yeah. movies with us. Um, so let's get into it, shall we? Okay. And let's talk about, now this is your pick. Uh, yeah. did we, I think we used to not say whose picks they were, but I think we've kind of broken that. Right. Uh, um, and it was a good one, especially since he hasn't made a huge gargantuan number of films. Uh, yeah. Although we've had problems in the past with lower filmography means, means we just talk in more detail about yeah that mel gibson one still found a way to make that long and yeah, he's got yeah. probably the smallest fil- i guess we could talk about uh charles lawton as a director and stretch that out to three and a half hours <laughs> yeah yeah uh-huh. but no we're going to do um the uh short and sweet filmography of jim jarmusch mm-hmm. um 17 credits as a director on imdb but okay. uh some of those are short films and at least one of those is a concert documentary that neither of us has seen right um so let's start with the beginning and 1983's permanent vacation okay so i have it listed here as 1980 what did i say 83 it is 80 okay i'm sick all right fair enough uh oh, so yeah. you see zeros is threes apparently i see um that's a simpsons reference everybody sorry what uh, I, was I, don't, saying. I don't know that reference. Um, uh, so did you? Now, did you get a chance to watch Permanent Vacation? I didn't. It's it's okay. unfortunate. I only recently, for my birthday, I received uh, Stranger Than Paradise on DVD, and Permanent Vaca- Vacation is on there. But mm-hmm. uh, it's the, yeah, the second disc. I wound up uh, rewatching some other films that I wanted to be able to talk more about, knowing that you had already seen Permanent Vacation, so okay. you could speak about it. Um, well, yeah, it's um, I, I watched it fairly recently i hadn't seen it before um and I, I guess i went into it thinking i'm watching this as a completist or whatever because we're doing the episode um and i expected a sort of amateurish early effort but really a lot of uh a lot of what we know as jim jarmusch emerges fully formed like um this sort of um uh i'm not even sure what the what uh what the word would be um uh, romanticism of i guess the sort of uh cool guys from the 50s i mm-hmm. guess is a big you know it's a maybe a big uh a big reason why jim jarmusch and tom waits have worked together they both sort of um have some of the same influences or or think of the same things as being cool mm-hmm. you know the the sort of um uh disaffected uh um, like James Deanish type of cool, you, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Um, and so you see that um, right here, this guy who lives, you know, Lower East Side. And it takes place in 1980, Lower East Side, 1980, uh, New York. Um, but you know, the characters wear suits with with skinny ties and like slick their hair back and have like those weird big clunky shoes. Yeah. Uh, and there's, um, you know, there's a great scene of him just. Uh, uh, like he comes he's his girlfriend or the woman he lives with not entirely clear is just looking out the window 
and he puts on a Charlie Parker record and for the entirety of the song just dances around the room while she's not even looking at him. And that's, that's the scene. All right. Uh, very, very, very Jim Jarmusch, but it, um, it also has some of the, the, the sense of humor, um, uh, or, or at least the sense of fun. Uh, I don't know that permanent vacation is as, um, laugh out loud a movie as some of his movies will end up being. I mean, some things, uh, could almost be considered comedies first. We'll talk about that as we get to it. Um, but there is uh, a sense of fun. There's a, you know, um, uh, a great part where he just hangs out. It's just him like hanging up, standing on the side of the street by a mail, like a mail slot mailbox mm-hmm. on the side of the street, like smoking a cigarette or whatever, just waiting. And you realize he's waiting for someone to pull up in the car and in, in their car and get out to put, a piece of mail in the mailbox so that he can steal the car. Uh, and, um, so that's sort of like hipster outlaw. Uh, I mean, hipster in like an old fashioned sense. Not, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, I, I think the word hipster originally was sort of applied to, uh, white people who tried to emulate like cool black culture of the mm-hmm. time. And I think that, that definitely applies to Jim Jarmusch I, and a lot of Tom Waits. Uh, well, and John Lurie as well. <clears throat> yeah, and John Lurie is in Permanent Vacation. Um, uh, and by the way, you should see um, uh, a movie, a, a recent documentary that we reviewed twice on the website. I reviewed it um, when it came out in the theater, and then Aaron reviewed it um, just recently when it came out on Blu-ray, a documentary called Blank City um, that talks about this the sort of late 70s, early 80s, Lower East Side art collective that gave rise to Jean, uh, to Basquiat and, and Blondie, but also John Lurie and Jim Jarmusch and all these mm-hmm. other people who were in the mix around that time. And, and John Lurie's in it. Um, uh, anyway, so that's a uh, permanent vacation. I don't want to spend forever on it. Uh, but it, I was surprised at how entertaining it was and how accomplished it was. Um, and that his, uh, um, his style emerged so fully formed. I mean, some might say his style is almost a lack of style, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that's entirely true. Uh, it, uh, I think it, um, his, it, it, it doesn't have a lot of flourish to it, but I don't think that's a lack of style. I think there's a, again, this word disaffected. Like I think he's, he's putting that on and like pulling his camera back a lot of the time, um, moving it as little as possible, you know, except for the occasional tracking shot that is mm-hmm. um, necessary. We'll talk about the opening of Down by Law, I'm sure. Um, uh, but uh, so, yeah, just because his style is I'm not even sure what the word is. Stark. Stark. Uh, yeah, maybe muted, but muted I don't know. It's pretty good. Um, doesn't mean it's not uh, incredibly considered no. in present. So let's. Um, Let's move on to Stranger Than Paradise. Okay. And yeah, I think you've seen it more recently than I yeah, have? Yeah, I saw it a couple days ago. Okay, good, because I actually haven't seen it in a few years. Yeah, I, I last saw it probably 10, 12 years ago. And um, and watching it again, I was... In spite of the fact that this was my idea to talk about Jim Jarmusch, I, I had not really seen many of you know a, a film of his for a while... And I needed sort of a refresher, and so I watched uh, Stranger Than Paradise, Coffee and Cigarettes, and Mystery Train. Uh, the others I had seen, I've seen Down by Law a lot, as and Broken Flowers. 
um, and Night on Earth. But but in rewatching these films, I know this. I'm going to speak very hyperbolically. Uh, I remembered why I love, absolutely love, Jim Jarmusch, and why I why I came to love him in the first place years ago. And so I want to speak about some of the larger things that he talks about and explores before we get into okay. like his better known filmography. Um, and I'll be speaking rather uh, personally as well. I won't be saying personal things, but like this is going to sound weird. He loves uh, America. Not in the way you – when people say like, oh, he's, a, he's an American filmmaker who makes movies about how much he loves America. There is a certain probably image you have in your mind of who that might be. And can you imagine anybody more insufferable? <laughs> um, and, but his films are so specifically American in, in, its, in the iconography and also just the types of stories that he tells. Like he is fascinated – as as I am, as I've said on the show, like I like there are certain things that I love. I love going on road trips, stopping off like at a diner on the side of the road, eating alone, um, <laughs> and just and doing it specifically in uh, America. Not that I'm opposed to other places, but there is something about our highway system and the way that you can just get on a road and go from New York to Los Angeles. You know, and that in itself is fascinating, and I think he finds that fascinating as well. Just, and the fact that he that he so often, and we'll see it in Stranger Than Paradise, uh, the fact that he so often chooses to look at this country through the lens of a foreigner and see and see it in a positive light, yeah, is something talk, that fascinates um, me. Go ahead. We, we've both seen um, I many times uh, Tom Anderson's. Um, Los Angeles plays itself. Mm-hmm. And he talks uh, in that movie about people not from Los Angeles coming here and making movies about here. And he talks about uh, what he classifies as lowbrow tourism and highbrow tourism. And lowbrow tourism is just hitting the landmarks and, and you know, the uh, the monuments and the tourist traps and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood Boulevard and, uh, you know, Rodeo Drive and the ocean and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, highbrow tourism is actually trying to um, get a sense of what the people who live there experience and what actually makes the city on a day-to-day basis uh, pulse. He talks about, um, I think he, he talks about uh, the film Model Shop. He talks about El Notre. Um, and I would say definitely see, even though Jim Jarmusch is an American, mm-hmm. um, he does seem to explore America in this highbrow tourism type of way of, you know, uh, I mean, uh, but, and then we'll get to things in which he does make it its own. You know, I don't think, I don't think you can go to Memphis and necessarily have the experience that the Japanese couple uh, has in the first act of, of mystery train. But, um, it's definitely also not the, brochure version of memphis either yeah he he finds he finds beauty in in unlikely places 
and or rather maybe beauty yes but i would also say just an emotional attachment to things that maybe are long since gone or given up on um for the same reason that and i don't mean to say i'm like jim jarmish uh i am not but i can relate to i think a lot of his ideas um for example i don't know why but seeing an empty storefront is not necessarily depressing, but I do have an emotional reaction to it. Like I, I imagine uh, this is really cheesy. I imagine like the hopes uh-huh. that somebody had when building that, and I imagine the business that went into it and isn't there anymore, and how we're driving by an empty building, but that is the site of somebody's failure, and who knows what happened to them since then? They could have found something that worked or not. Mm-hmm. And and it's just loaded with meaning, whereas for some people, and I'm not saying I'm better than they are because sometimes this is quite paralyzing, mm-hmm. um, you know, for most people, it's just an empty building and that's it. If if nothing else, it is a un, an unfortunately wasted opportunity. It's, it's oh, unused space. That's unfortunate. But, um, yeah, but, but, I, uh, but I don't think he is necessarily, even though I talked about in talking about permanent vacation, his like interest in like the the fifties and like sort of uh, bebop culture and jazz and and rock and roll culture um particularly like black culture mm-hmm. um from the fifties but mostly with white characters uh yeah. I, I think that's important um because he himself is white um but uh I don't think it is necessarily just um an interest in the past I think you can almost look at Jim Jarmusch as presenting an alternate present where oh, yeah. the things that he thinks were the coolest of the 40s, 50s, and 60s somehow thrived, and now we have a a, a contemporary culture that is based on those things. You yeah, know? It's, uh, he does not necessarily reflect the reality we live in, yeah, because but he's he, still... He doesn't make period pieces, even right. though everything in almost all his movies is informed by something from the past. Yeah. Uh, mid-century. And it's just... Uh, and so the the things that he uses are the, like the the images that he focuses on and the iconography and often you know the impetus for entire stories are I'd say decidedly American uh not that they can't happen in other countries but they are very American like even I mean coffee and cigarettes like the very name of it is I mean I think of America when I think of coffee and cigarettes um and i think of diners and i think of dive you know dives and stuff like that and uh and so but in the midst of all this you talk about these uh, hipster characters and that's that's just the word i'll use because i feel yeah. like that it applies and i think i've already defined what we mean by right. within the context of this episode so right um so like that is that's the world that he creates but he peoples this world with uh, misfits and hipsters and people who either because of the things they're interested in or a conscious choice they have made are disaffected, as you said, and holding themselves outside. But the common, I think the common thread will be while they're holding themselves apart, there is still a deep desire, if not all out need for human connection. Okay. And now, so with that, Strange in the yes, Paradise. Yes, in the interest of moving things along, Strange in the Paradise. And I, again, you've seen it more recently, so I will let you talk. 
but um, <clears throat> a thing he does in Stranger Than Paradise that we'll see um, uh, a, a couple of times um, is you talked about approaching American America as a foreigner. He actually has at least one foreigner mm-hmm. uh, in this and the next two films after it. He will have at least one foreign foreign element um, coming into America to see, so we can see it through their eyes. In this case, it's a Hungarian woman. Is is that right? Yeah. Is she Hungarian? You've yeah. seen him more recently. Yeah. Well, and it's it's actually she she is specifically foreign but you find out uh, her name is eva and she's like 18 years old and she comes to new york and sees her cousin named willie but his real name is bella uh-huh. so and he speaks hungarian which is to say he understands it but he never speaks it but you feel like he probably could if he wanted to uh-huh. and his his uh, aunt lives in cleveland i believe and she is an immigrant as well and so all of these – so they're all family and then there's a, another character, a guy named Eddie played by Richard Edson and he's a friend. Um, but he's, he has stated that he didn't know that Willie's – played by John Larry Willie's name was Bella. Like it seems to be a source of not necessarily shame for Willie but he seems to downplay this idea that he is different from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so – but yeah, it's. But the the story, if you want to call it that, um, kicks in once uh, his uh, cousin Eva uh, comes into the country. And so there are, there are three acts, I'd say, to the the film. The first is Eva and Willie living together in New York. Eva's supposed to go on to Cleveland, but their aunt is in the hospital for like t- a week and a half. And so she's staying with Willie and they're trying to get to know each other. They are often on each other's nerves, but there is, but you see Willie much to his surprise and ours, you see him trying to connect with her. Like mm-hmm. he buys her a dress and, uh, they share cigarettes and that sort of thing. Um, and then act, and then she moves on to Cleveland. And Act Two is a year later, and Willie and Eddie have uh, they're very small time grifters, and they have <laughs> cheated some guys out of uh, some money, and so they leave town for a while, and they need a place to go, so they borrow a car and drive to Cleveland, and it is cold and snowy and miserable, and uh, and so then Willie, Eddie, and Eva decide let's let's keep going, let's go down to uh, Florida. So that's act three is, is, uh, them in Florida, whereupon they lose most of their money at the (laughs) dog track. Um, and just, and it's just interesting because, um, what I find fast, as, as I mentioned, it's, it's hipsters and misfits disassociated from each other, but desperately wanting that connection. But often they are. Not necessarily caged because there is often an optimism and a hope in Jarmusch's films, but they very much are sort of prisoners of their own nature. And so even in uh, Stranger Than Paradise where characters are are making the effort to connect with one another, they all seem to only get, be able to get so far. But the fact that they are – the fact that they're still trying is I think where the optimism comes from. But – you also realize it's going to be a lot more work than most movies are willing to put in. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's what I like about the, about the way Jarmusch approach, uh, approaches pretty much all of his characters and all of his films. But then from a visual standpoint, 
this and uh, Down by Law, he shoots in black and white, and mm-hmm. and and Dead Man, and Dead Man, and Coffee and Cigarettes. Um, and I think it, uh, I think it works very well because black and white is surprise is something of a something of an equalizer, and so you see like kind of hip New York, but you also see, you know, snow covered cleveland mm-hmm. and you're like man that looks miserable and then they go to the beach in florida and because it's black and white it looks just as white and uh-huh. and depressing as cleveland and um, and their hotel that they stay at is uh, delightfully uh, dilapidated the one other thing one other thing i want to point about strangers in paradise before we move on is that uh eva is her name yeah um loves screaming jay hawkins yeah and uh it we'll see it again when we get to mystery train but the idea of someone coming to america with an obsession with a very specific thing that is in the past. Yeah. It's very similar to Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris and Owen Wilson going to Paris expecting the 1920s Paris of Pablo Picasso and Gertrude Stein and, and Ernest Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and Salvador Dali. It, you know, and obviously that's not what's there, but it, there's something uh, there's something respectable about, like, or, or not respectable, admirable almost about their... Um, seeking that thing out uh, yeah. it's 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 almost uh uh quixotic pursuit uh, yeah. but um you'll see that uh again in mystery train and probably we'll be able to pick out some uh things in some other movies mm-hmm. but let's move on to down by law yeah which i am really bummed i didn't get a chance to rewatch. um partially because i've just been wanting to rewatch uh new orleans movies since having visited yeah uh that place but i know it begins if i remember with um a tracking shot i think taking from a car probably yeah um of uh, what to uh tom waits song which song is it jockey full of bourbon jockey full of bourbon off of rain dogs mm-hmm. uh a song i definitely like um uh and most mostly of the above ground cemeteries yeah uh it, it's a it's a pretty wonderful um introduction to the version of new orleans that you're about to get whether or not it's the real one it's the one that jim Jarmer wants to show you yeah and and i like that you that you say like that's his version of new orleans you in mystery train you'll see his version of memphis stranger than paradise you see his version of these various places and because i think if jim jarmish were to listen to this i don't know if he ever will but okay you did down by law in new orleans mystery train in memphis You've got to set a movie in St. Louis and conclude the Mississippi River trilogy that you've set out for yourself. I could have sworn that Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, takes place <laughs> in St. Louis. Does, isn't there that big climactic scene in the arch? <laughs> yeah, in the arch. <laughs> on the arch. On top of the arch. Yeah. Well, the, the hero and villain are fighting while in, one, in that uh, tiny uh, elevator thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but just what I like about his vision of these places is often how sparse they are. Uh-huh. I mean, of course, we already talked about his style. But when you actually realize he, he saves a lot of money on extras. And I don't think it's purely a practical uh, decision. Yeah. But uh, they won't pick that up, right? I don't even hear it. Okay. Wait, I don't know what you're talking about. I've got cat-like ears. Oh, okay. Do cats have good ears? I don't know. I meant to say bat-like. So, um, but like the the world that these characters inhabit they seem to be the only ones there them and either their friends or enemies not a lot of other people walking around right people only people that will interact with them directly even if it's a stranger who gets you know who mixes them up for somebody else like in stranger than paradise mm-hmm. and says like hey you must be the person i'm looking for here's a big here's a big wad of money <laughs> um 
and and I kind of find that strangely admirable that he just he just trims the fat, but also it really adds to just loneliness. Like there's such a sense of loneliness, and and we keep coming back to it: the sense of being just disconnected. And when you see uh, John Lurie is also in Down by Law, Tom Waits is in it, and you see them separately, and they both uh, John Lurie is a pimp and. Uh, Tom Waits is an ex-DJ who gets pulled into a criminal uh, enterprise to make some money. And um, to make some money. Yes. No, that's pretty much the reason, <laughs> right? And so um, – and both of them wind up getting uh, you know, tricked and they go to jail. They don't know each other and only – and when they go to prison, Orleans Parish Prison, um, they, uh, they, room, they room together – <laughs> I keep using the wrong phrases, but, um, and, and you see these two guys who are constantly keeping the world at arm's length and now they they have to deal with each other in the closest quarters possible. And it's, I find it really, uh, I find it really fascinating just to see just that dynamic by itself. And then in a stroke of brilliance, Jim Jarmusch introduces a third character into their cell, played by Roberto Benini in full Roberto Benini mode. Yeah, and my my two favorite Roberto Benini performances are Jim Jarmusch movies, this and Night on Earth. Oh yeah, uh, it's funny. I was just talking about how I don't like Life is Beautiful, but he is. Uh, I mean, this is what I was talking about when I was saying that some of Jarmusch's movies approach being just pure comedy. When you know. I am a good egg. Yeah. Uh, it's very funny stuff. But he also, when he says, when he says am, he says it with an H. So he says, I am a good egg. I am a good egg. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, which is a weird, I don't know. And so then you have these, these three guys, two of whom really do not get along and have gotten into like a physical altercation. And then you throw in the foreigner who is optimistic and actually has committed the crime that mm-hmm. he's uh, been put in prison for. Uh, I killed a man is how he says it. Um, and granted he did it like to like fight for a woman's honor or whatever, you know, this very noble thing, but he still, he did it. He absolutely did it. Um, but he is just energetic and enthusiastic and he manages to sort of bring the three of them together. There is a, a scene that I that is funny, but I also find surprisingly touching, in which uh, I believe one of them, they're playing a card game, and I think either Tom Waits or John Lurie uh, says the word scream, mm-hmm. I think. I don't totally remember if it's that, at which point Roberto Benigni goes, oh, 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 like as if to, to illustrate that he knows the word. And he goes, ah, ah. I scream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. And then they laugh and like, yeah, that's right. And he goes, ah, I scream. And he does, it, he does it again. And then he keeps saying it. And then they say it. And then everybody in the prison is saying it. And then the guards get upset. But, um, and then they, and, and they go down the uh, row of cells being like, shut up. And uh, as, they, as the three guys... <coughs> see that the guard is coming near them, they all <laughs> quietly sit back down. And so when the guard reaches them, he's like, oh, be quiet in here too. <laughs> and so like, it, the, it's very mischievous. And so the three actually do bond together. And then uh, when they, 
and then it's Roberto Benigni who actually finds a way out of the jail, out of uh, prison, and so the three escape, and it's just, and and you'll find that and then again it becomes a road movie, yeah, and and it's and there's also a really wonderful scene where Roberto Benigni uh, meets this this girl that he falls in love with instantly. Oddly mm. enough, another Italian, yeah, and uh, and they there's this moment where they are dancing, and you meant I thought of this because you were talking about permanent vacation um and an extended dance scene and so there's a scene where roberto Benini and this woman are dancing to this old like 50s song uh-huh. and they th- the whole song plays and they are just dancing in this really loving intimate way and it's played by um no i don't remember her name nicoletta brashi I don't. I might be. That might not be the right name. But anyway, Roberto, Roberto Benigni's real life wife. Oh, okay. And so, um, and while they're doing that, it's fun to look back and see John Lurie and Tom Waits' faces because mm-hmm. they just have like these smiles, and you can tell those are the actors smiling. It's not yeah. necessarily the characters, but it, it works. And it's, uh, and it just it very much returns to what we will see frequently, which is people who are who don't necessarily like each other. They are trying to keep everybody at arm's length and then life in some way just forces them to live together. And, uh, I will say one quick side note before we move on. Uh Um, I made a film years ago called speech and debate. Uh Okay. And you can find, you can find it on YouTube, uh, in it's, you know, split up into nine parts, uh, such as the nature of YouTube. And, as you know, as I mentioned on here before, it is the story of David, uh, you know, our first year of living together. Uh-huh. And we argued a lot, and that's what the film primarily is. And when deciding what tone I wanted to strike, I decided I wanted it to be like Down by Law. Specifically, I wanted to make it seem like this apartment was a jail <laughs> and that they couldn't uh, get out of it. And so, like, the idea of using the long take, because a cut is always, a cut can be used to heighten tension, but it can also be used to cut tension. You know, just like, like, oh, I can't stand to watch this. I, it's like, even a cut to something else within the scene can give you a slight, like, ah, oh, just, and so when Jim Jarmusch, like, is creating a tense scene, I don't mean tense, like, oh, what could happen? But just like, oh, this is awkward. He just holds, and he doesn't let you get away from it, because you're in there with the characters, whether you like it or not. And, and, I don't think that is really more clear than in Down by Law. So now we move on to Mystery Train, which is a movie that I really like, but it's funny, just now, after talking about Strings of Paradise and Down by Law, Mystery Train sort of starts to feel like a more minor work. Do, do, you, do you see what, I'm, what, I, what I mean, I, I guess? In that it's... Um, <clears throat> I don't want to go so far as to use the term that you and I have used uh, about seeing the strings... But mm-hmm. I do see the director more in Mystery Train, maybe. Um, whereas I think Strings in the Paradise and Down by Law both are about the ideas that are Jim Jarmusch, but are also um, uh, you know, heavily indebted to their characters. Mm-hmm. Whereas Mystery Train is about the city and the vignettes first, you know, and, and yeah. maybe in the like tying things around the gunshot that you hear in all three segments, it's yeah. maybe a bit a bit more clever and in that way you see the machinations at work a little more do, do you see 
compared to these past two films that Mystery yeah. Train seems like a lesser film? Well, I mean, he he very much does work in vignettes, even when he's telling one story. Like I said, uh, right. Stranger Than Paradise, and even Down by Law, mm-hmm. very much fit into three acts. That's not necessarily three act structure. I mean, three acts in the sense of like a play. Like yeah. the circumstances from one act to another are often very very different. But um, now this is the first since Permanent Vacation and the first of his major films that he shot in color. Yeah. Um, and Robbie Mueller, uh, does a fantastic job. Yeah. It's, and he, he shot down by law and stranger than paradise mm-hmm. as well. Uh, did he shoot? I think he shot stranger than paradise. I know he shot down by law and okay. he's a, a really wonderful, uh, DP and Memphis looks really beautiful. Well, there's a shot in, in Mr. Train that is, uh, so much comments on, this this Jim Jarmusch like version of tourism that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. It's uh, toward the end, or maybe toward the middle of the first segment. Uh, the Japanese couple walking, and they're walking through the Jim Jarmusch Memphis, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like older buildings, you know, kind of run totally down, empty streets, empty lots. Yeah, and then they come past a certain building, past an empty lot, and suddenly you see the skyline of yeah. you know what what year is it? Nineteen eighty nine, like. Yeah. 1989 contemporary Memphis with all its lights and tall buildings yeah. behind them. And it's, uh, uh, on the one hand, it is beautiful, thanks to Robbie Mueller. Mm-hmm. But it's also jarring because yeah. you kind of were in this bubble of the the past brought into the contemporary, this, this Jim Jarmusch bubble, yeah. and then suddenly there's reality. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> and it does, I think it does highlight how... I feel bad that we just keep, well, that I keep reusing terms, but like it really does highlight how removed the characters feel because at some point, <clears throat> I think it happens in the third segment as well. Like it happens in the first segment with the Japanese couple, and then I think the same shot, the same location is used in the second segment with the Italian woman. Oh yeah, I think you still see that, and I assume I right. it happens in the third. I don't totally. Recall. I don't know because the third one takes place almost completely at night yeah whereas the other ones start in the day and go into the night yeah so but yeah it is used and reused and it's just and it's it's people who are just like hey there's that world i'm much more interested in being where i am or there's that world i can never be a part of it yeah sometimes it's a choice and i think other times it's a longing to maybe be part of the contemporary world i I think the third segment maybe doesn't have that shot if it doesn't, which I don't remember, although I have seen it fairly recently, um, doesn't have that shot uh, very intentionally because mm-hmm. it's the segment that is about people who live in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Whereas the f- first you've got the Japanese couple, then you've got the Italian woman. Right. And then you've got um, suddenly, uh, who is it? Steve Buscemi. Uh, who are the three? Steve Buscemi. There's Joe Strummer. Right. And I don't remember who the, the other the, one is. The black guy. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Um, even though he's... I don't think he's the lead of the segment, but he is the anchor. I'd say so. Yes. Like, he's the reasonable one. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind of uh, the straight man of the piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, there... I don't think you get any shots like that. Um, because the, most of the shots you get of them are either indoors or inside the cab of the truck. Mm-hmm. It's a much more insular world because yeah. they're not the kind of people who are go- going to take time to look around. I mean, how many, how often do you in your neighborhood like go out and 
to the intersection actually just to look around and take it in like a tourist you wouldn't do that you see it's almost like tunnel vision because yeah this is where you live you don't need to you're familiar with everything yeah it's how you're able to drive from work to home and forget that you even did it uh, yeah um, road hypnosis and it's and it's worth noting i think that in these three segments the first segment involves people who very specific are not from memphis but very specifically came to memphis second segment a woman who is in, in memphis by accident she was never meant to be there right but she's sort of making the most of it and then the third is people that are from there and the location doesn't necessarily mean much to them mm-hmm. um I mean, it does to a certain extent because, um, you know, Joe Strummer's character is called Elvis and just the way he. Uh, yeah. And he's clearly, I mean, he lives there, but he's clearly yeah. not from there because he's right. got a British accent. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a real, it's a really wonderful film and it's very funny and, it, but it also is, and I guess I, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to talk about, uh, maybe the, the last major thing that I find in Jarmusch's films. I feel like there is a genuine love for his characters. Um, I think even, even if there are characters that he would view negatively, I think he just really wants to see them as they are and really, really has affection for them. Even, even characters that are like con men that act as antagonists, um, like in Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law, there's an actor that he likes to use whose name we love named Rocket's Red Glare. Uh-huh. And, I mean, Rocket's Red Glare, like he's missing his two front teeth, he's an, he's an overweight guy, and he's often just a really sleazy character. But I feel like Jim Jarmusch kind of loves him and and just li- and certainly loves the look and the vibe the actor gives. But, um, and with, uh, with, mystery train i really feel like he just he wants to he wishes he could spend time spend his whole life with all with these people yeah even the even the clerk that the italian woman uh meets who talks her into buying all these magazines (laughs) you know like you could see him as like sleazy and he's just trying to make a bit more money and he is but you also just feel like this movie could veer off and spend a whole day with this guy and i'd be fine with it and i think jim jarmusch would too yeah, uh, and let's uh, move on in a second. But I want yeah the, the the Japanese couple who are just almost unbelievably adorable uh, yeah. together. Um, he he seems to um, identify both with them, or I think he in some ways wants to be them to be able to mm-hmm. be this kind of focused um, to to experience a version of America. They're almost imposing their own idea of what America is onto it. Yeah, you know, and he being from here maybe can't do that so he's uh, identifying with them but also identifying with the desk clerks um screaming jay hawkins and the other guy um Sinke lee sink i don't know how you say his, his uh, name but you see him also in coffee and cigarettes yeah um, and uh yeah that's right yeah. um uh them as being you know americans and viewing yeah. this japanese couple as kind of weird and silly uh, you know, he, he identifies both of them at the same time. But, um, the last thing I want to talk about, which will sort of transition us into the next two films in, in, in different ways is that, um, with Steve Buscemi in the third, the third vignette, I think it's maybe the first time in all these films that we get a character who is first and foremost, a square, mm-hmm. not, 
not a part of the the hipster outsider cool guy or no. or even like con man sleazy like these people who exist on the you know on the fringes of society are the focus and suddenly we get this character who is he's got a straight normal. job yeah. and he views things the way most people probably would yes um and so uh that sort of um back and forth between the what is at this point the prototypical Jim Chalmers character and the square um, is something we'll see a little bit of in Night, Night on Earth. You know, sometimes, as in the first, vin, uh, uh, I guess we'll stick with the name vignette, um, the Jim Chalmers character is Winona Ryder, the taxi mm-hmm. driver, and the square is Gina Rollins. Or, yeah, or, or, which you wouldn't expect given <clears throat> the careers that the two women have. Yeah. So, okay, I, we've, I think we've now moved into Night on Earth. Yeah. So um, Which we don't have to spend a lot on this because this is one of the most minor films in his. I'd say that's that's true, but it is really just a, a compilation of five short films, uh-huh. and the common theme is its uh, experiences in taxi cabs. Yeah, but it does go back to to what I've been talking about, which is people who probably would never hang out together. They might get along, they might not, but. They have to because I've got somewhere to be and you – this is your job. And so they do that and so – and they just sort of connect with each other a little bit. And I remember some of the – when I lived in Chicago, some of the more interesting conversations I've ever had were with cab drivers. There was the guy who had a stoplight, pulled out a flute and started playing it um, <laughs> because he wanted to show that he was actually a musician. Um, he was uh, like 75. <laughs> I um, – when I was in New York City um, – we were uh, going to take the train. It was like, you know, bars open until four. So it was probably like three 30 in the morning. And suddenly, you know, we're a number, like lots and lots of blocks from the train and it starts pouring rain. So we just like hail the next cafe, ca- cab and we get in and the cab driver has a conversation with us, but he doesn't talk. He sings everything he says Wow! for the entire ride. And I think he was uh Pakistani and he like, he like, He's like, what is your name to uh, my girlfriend? And she said, Natalie. And he's like, and just starts singing, Natalie, Natalie. <laughs> it was, uh, that that's, was delightful. As offensive, David. That's, a, that's not a I good, uh, that's, that's like stereotyping. No, I wasn't that doing a Pakistani accent. I'm saying that's how he sang. Okay. That's how this one particular guy sang. Fair enough. All right. Um, but yeah, so I don't want to go like short film by short film, but many in Night on Earth, but like that is the common theme is people like, Sometimes they kind of argue with each other. Sometimes they get along, but often they often start not at all on the same page and then come together in some way. Um, even if that way is, we still don't like each other, but I can still see the world through your eyes a little bit, even if you are in fact blind. And so, um, but the ones that That's I my did, least favorite one, by the way, uh, the terrorist I, one, I would agree. Um, like I understand what he's doing. That actor, who he used again as the lead in Limits of Control, and he's in Coffee and Cigarettes as well. In in that my favorite vignette in Coffee and Cigarettes, I think yeah. whatever Jim Jarmusch sees in that guy, I don't get. Yeah, it's maybe <clears throat> I mean, he sees yeah. a, a bit of a stone face. We'll talk about Limits of Control when yeah, we get yeah. there. Um, uh, I do want to talk about the Los Angeles one really quickly, okay. and a thing that wouldn't bother me if I didn't live here, but the the route that one writer takes from. LAX to Beverly Hills is crazy. There's no reason she should be on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, my, no. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, I guess it wouldn't bother me if I didn't know, but because I do know, 
it becomes all I can think about when I when I watch it. And like, yeah, she's a seasoned cab driver. She's got to <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, this is not the way to do it. Um, yeah, and I really enjoy Roberto Benigni in it. I, I maybe my favorite one is the one between Armin Mueller-Stahl and uh, Giancarlo Esposito. That one is really and delightful. Perez. And Rosie Perez. And it's just uh, in which Armin Mueller-Stahl is a cab driver who does not know how to drive stick. And uh, Giancarlo Esposito is his passenger. And he finds out more. And they find out more about each other. And that uh, Armin Mueller-Stahl was a clown back uh-huh. wherever it was he was from. And, yeah, speaking uh, of playing flutes, he... Yeah. he Plays two of them, yeah. I believe. Um, and then I do – and that's the thing. I'd say Jim Jarmusch mostly functions in comedy. It might be very dry comedy. Mm-hmm. Then you get to that Helsinki film. And that one is heartbreaking. And there's – And funny. And funny. But, I mean, it, it, there really is a, a bittersweet melancholy to it that, uh, that I really loved. And but I like that the film ends on it. It is specifically a um – Homage to the films of Aki Karasmaki. I'm not sure if I'm saying that mm. correct. Um, to the point where there are characters named. There's a character named Aki mm. and a character named Mika, who I think is Aki Karasmaki's uh, screenwriter. I, I don't know mm. as much as I should about his yeah. his films, but um, uh, that's that. You know, that's why it takes place in Finland of all places because yeah. that's where that filmmaker's from. But um, is there anything particular we need to say about Night on Earth, or, or um, should we move on because we got to yeah, I think, I think we can move on. Okay. So let's move on to Dead Man. Which, which is, I haven't seen in years, so go right ahead. Well, which has become my favorite uh, Jim Jarmusch film. It was always done by law. I watched Dead Man somewhat recently, within the past couple months in preparation for this for the first time. And I thought, wow, that's almost as good as done by law. And then the more I think about it, the more it is, it is my favorite. Okay. Um, because... Uh, it, it's it's about uh, it's about outsiders, but it's more specifically than anything else about the square in the outsider's world mm-hmm. becoming the outsider, <clears throat> or or or, or I, I don't want to spoil the movie, but um, uh, but it also um, I said he doesn't make period films. This is the exception. I'm sure someone when I said that was screaming at their iPod, like, right. except for Dead Man. Yes, this is the exception. Um, and it, so it's it's sort of a uh, um, gutsy move for him to take away a lot of what he has leaned on in the past. He can't... Well, it's 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 a period film, and, it's, and it is a film that is specifically a genre, and it's a very American genre, mm-hmm. but he makes it in a very... Not an un-American way. That sounds really terrible, but like... But yeah, there is a the European su- European, yeah. The yeah. sweeping vistas are not there. Yeah, yeah. Um I mean uh what's what's funny what we often don't get <clears throat> in westerns is the fact that while the west was like this, the east coast is um pretty well settled and mm-hmm. you know becoming quite metropolitan by that time. Uh and and so of course we don't see the cities um but we see the city person, you know, um, Johnny Depp is a more recognizable contemporary character. You know, mm-hmm. he's, uh, um, softer as a man maybe than uh, what we're used to seeing in, in, in a Western. Um, and <clears throat> we're, we also have, um, 
a different take on the Native American uh, character. So the two lead characters are different versions of what we usually see mm-hmm. in, a, in a Western. You know, um, the... Um, like uh, I talked about, the, it's it's not a cowboy; it's an accountant, you yeah. know. Um, but and then it's not, you know, a stoic Native American. It's one who has been um, uh, raised and educated by Westerners, um, and is sort of apart from his own people, yeah. um, and has his own mixed opinions about both sides. You know, yeah. he. It's almost too reductive to call him a Native American because he really represents both and neither yeah. sides of the of the battle, as as it were. Which gives him a, a well, among other things. That's this is what gives him the mystical quality is that he more than anybody else, maybe in the history of Jim Jarmusch's filmography, uh-huh. is outside, mm-hmm. and he seems to prefer that. Like other people, they say they prefer it. As I've mentioned, they say they prefer, it, but I think there's a deep longing to connect. Whereas he seems to be perfectly content to be outside of both cultures. Yeah, because he's been treated really poorly by both. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I, I guess what I want to say, is, what I want to posit maybe is that uh, Johnny Depp has a character named William Blake, not the poet William Blake, or is he? <laughs> <laughs> um, is maybe the most autobiographical character. Uh, that's a way you could read it. I think Jim Jarmusch might want to see himself as, you know, uh, the John Lurie's or, you know, Joe Strummer's or all the other, like, uh, you know, cool, uh, hipster characters, but maybe this, maybe he secretly views himself as this sort of intellectual, uh, interloper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, Johnny Depp's acclamation to, the the wild west could be could be seen as analogous to Jim Jarmusch trying to acclimate himself to um to hipster outsider fringe culture when really he's probably a pretty introverted and intellectual person um not that Johnny Depp is necessarily an intellectual he is an introvert right um but it's worth noting that he doesn't know who William Blake the poet is yeah um I just wanted to put that out there but um uh, another thing we see here in in Dead Man, I mean, we've seen violence a little bit before. This is um, at, certainly up to this point the most violent film Jim Jarmusch has made. Mm-hmm. That uh, we'll also get uh, Ghost Dog, which has a lot of violence in it. Um, but there is, except for one amazing thing, there is no sexiness or coolness to. The violence. No, it's um, it's presented with this uh, stylistic lack of style we talked about in the intro. Um, you know, it's very straightforward. It's very blunt. You know the, uh, and I don't. You know, I think sometimes people talk about how blunt Scorsese can be, but I think that's not entirely true. Scorsese is still stylizing. I think his his violence. Yeah. Um, you know the. Uh, Spoilers, but Samuel L. Jackson's character getting shot in Goodfellas is very straightforward, but it's also intentionally put there in a way to shock and kind of gross you out because, like, that's a lot of blood that comes out of his head. Yeah. Um, but here it's just like – it's just this – in the true essential word, this dumb piece of lead, you know, that enters into a person and then they're dead. You know, yeah. you don't get this, like 
arterial spray or or like anything that like signifies you know the importance of a character's death or the importance of the decision to pull the trigger it just is and it's dumb and it's over yeah it's very matter of fact and it's and that actually makes it appropriately disturbing i think the idea that it's just you know pull trigger loud noise 200 pound piece of meat yeah and that's it yeah uh, with the exception of one shot that I, I don't know entirely how I feel about, I know that I love it, but I don't know in- intellectually how I feel about it. When the um, the marshals, I think, uh, or or bounty hunters, I can't remember, come upon him and ask him, "Are you William Blake?" and he says very coolly, "Like, yes. Do you know my poetry?" and then shoots the guy. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the hero. Like that's the antihero romantic right. uh, murder in the movie. And I don't know, is it because at that point it's the first time that William Blake, the accountant has become William Blake, the poet. Um, and, and, and what does that significance mean? Do you have any ideas about why that particular shot is more romanticized than any of the other murders that come before or after? Well, like I said, I haven't seen the film in a while, probably in about, uh, probably about 10 years. Okay. Um, so I don't remember it specifically, but if I had to guess, I would say it's, it's yes. He is now starting to think of himself in a different way, probably more romantic way. To the point, like, I would say, okay, if you or myself, who I would, we are at best intellectuals, mo- most likely just nerds. Pseudo-intellectuals. Pseudo, there, there you go. Maybe, maybe, you know what, let's go with quasi Quasi, uh, that's about right. Give ourselves a little bit of credit. So, um, uh, I'm a big fan of the phrase, would be. So, but if you and I suddenly found ourselves getting in a fight with somebody uh-huh. and like winning, uh-huh. you know, I do think that as nerdy as we are and as much as I identify myself as a film critic and a Christian and a husband and all these things that are, you know, ostensibly, uh, you know, peace loving. If I suddenly found myself in a fight and I beat the hell out of somebody, I do think I'd probably say something kind of dumb and act and action heroish. And I say that perfectly honestly, like in that moment, just feeling like, fuck yeah. Asshole. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't mean to like get so, you know what it is? Um, okay. There's a thing out there. Listeners probably know about it cause it's a, it's pretty old now, uh, called wizard people, dear readers. It is like an alternate commentary track by an actor named Brad Neely of the first Harry Potter. Uh-huh. And there was a, uh, and the scene at the end where he burns off Quirrell's face with his hands, uh-huh. the alternate, the alternate track has him saying like, it's like, Oh yeah. Uh, he's like, he goes, uh, he goes, this game is over when Harry says it's over. <laughs> I do the killing around here. <laughs> and it's just, and the way he says it, it's the kind of thing where it's, it's ridiculous and over the top of him. He's like, yeah, I do the killing around here. And just, um, and I just, it's, it's that kind of, uh, you could say macho or just this instinct to like claim this thing that you don't think you are. And then suddenly you become that. And so I think it's him claiming that the character of William Blake claiming that for himself, which might, which to us would look like, Whoa, what? This belongs in another movie. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it belongs in a much more romanticized movie. And in that moment he's become, I think a romanticized 
character because there's plenty of romance in the old west and so we yeah. see a moment from from other westerns suddenly entering into this yeah um but uh, this is um i mean the next film after this that he'll make is uh a samurai movie which has more to do with this like uh ancient code and maybe mm-hmm. even some sort of ritualism or superstition you know mm-hmm. or mysticism uh, and but th- this is uh, up until this point, the most uh, mystical uh, movie. Because, the, the, again, uh, you, I mean, I think we find ourselves, and most people would find themselves, talking about Dead Man as a Western in the ways that it's different mm-hmm. from other Westerns. Um, and uh, it, I, you feel more like... Um, uh, less like it's uh, William Blake going into the Wild West than it is like uh, Dante going into the Inferno, mm-hmm. you know, and um, uh, the because the, there's of course there's all the uh, wildness, you know, and 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 and, and gunfights and uh, lack of law and order, but there's also just like hellish things, like the the first thing he sees he gets off the off the train walking through the town is that guy being filleted in the alley who like violently filleted and then who points the gun at him, you know, and then from there you get cannibalism and, uh, crazy ass Robert Mitchum. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Lance Hendrickson crushing a man's skull. Like it's a, it's a hellish place, not just a lawless place, but it is, it's almost, it's not only like lawless in terms of, uh, the laws of man, but almost in terms of the laws of nature. And it's, and, and Jarmusch is a very good, I mean, he doesn't really work in genre and he certainly doesn't work in like suspense, but this is a very tense, suspenseful film mm-hmm. because it is well, as you say, it's well established pretty early on that violence can and often will erupt at the drop of a hat and you and you won't see it coming because you don't see it coming you always expect it yeah. and uh and the scene that I do want to mention we've talked about on the show before that is often funny but then turns very quickly into violence but still is, kind of funny but still funny <laughs> don't get me wrong uh-huh. it features billy bob thornton who he and his friends are sitting around the campfire his friends iggy pop and uh uh jared harris Jer- yeah, that's right yes yeah. and uh and he winds up some – I don't exactly remember the circumstances, but he winds up getting shot in the foot, right? Oh, because um, uh, Billy Bob Thornton and Jared Harris are arguing over who gets to – I think who gets to rape uh, William Blake. That's I, right. I think it's yes. what they're talking about. I think it was that. Who had the last one and Billy Bob Thornton is saying, so what if I had the last one? I'll have this one too. Yeah. And Jared Harris threatens to shoot him and he says, well, go on, do it. You know, Quit talking about it and do it. Yeah. And then he shoots him in the foot. And, and what does he say? He goes, good God, I'm hit. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Burns like hellfire. I'm going to have to kill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. They've just been talking about raping a man. Mm-hmm. They're, everybody at that campfire is a monster. Uh-huh. But just the way Billy Bob Thornton plays it, like, I'm a fan of Billy Bob Thornton as an actor. I think he's great. Someday we should do a profile <laughs> on him. That's a fun thing to say. Uh-huh. Um and that might be, from a comedic standpoint, his crowning achievement. <laughs> saying, I'm hit. Uh-huh. Like, who's he saying it to? The guy who just shot him? Uh-huh. Like, and just, I'm going to have to kill somebody. Just like, this is what it's going to have to be. 
But he also like is funny and creepy earlier than that when he's feeling Johnny Depp's hair yeah. and saying that like talking about how his hair I can't remember it's like it's like it's as brittle as hay, I can't do a thing with it. Like he's <laughs> talking about how he can't do anything with his hair, but also this is the lead up to uh, a, a gang rape slash murder. Yeah. So, and Iggy Pop's wearing a dress. Why wouldn't he be? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, again, I haven't seen it for a while, but I remember it just being such a, such a wonderful, distinct film that mm. is, uh, that you would not, I mean, if you saw everything of Jim Jarmusch leading up to it, this is not the film you would expect, nor is the next, yeah. the next, uh, fiction film. Yeah. Um, well, um, I recommend going to, uh, the Chicago Reader website and reading Jonathan Rosenbaum's very long essay yeah. about Dead Man, which I guess he actually expanded on and turned into a, a small book yeah. that you can buy, which I haven't read. I've just read the uh, published essay. Um, I've tried not to repeat what he said too much or let it like inform how I feel about the film too much to where mm-hmm. it's plagiarism, but it's uh, a fantastic piece of, of criticism. I read his essay, and it seems as though – I don't know if he would – qualify it like this but it seems as though dead man is his favorite film of all time like it it really has that vibe like he just feels so passionately about it and it's like words cannot express yeah. how passionately i feel about this film um now the the music in dead man which i was actually familiar with before i saw the film because i'm a huge uh, uh, uh yeah i would say i'm a huge neil young fan mm-hmm. uh is by neil young um and i had the cd soundtrack for years which included includes that uh that whole billy Bob thornton scene oh, really? on it because there's music that goes under it so anytime any piece of dialogue that's in the movie with music under it is on the cd it's Interesting. It's, it's, it's pretty cool so the whole story about nobody's like uh past and being kidnapped and taken to london and all that stuff and and of course this whole whole, whole thing is on the on the cd and it's it's fantastic music uh otherworldly but um also, it has sort of country-ish or Western tinges to it, mm. but it's uh, very specifically electric. Yeah, you know, which which kind of in a way clashes with uh, the setting because you know this is a before the electric guitar, obviously. But it's a big part of you talk about the tension in the movie. Mm. I think a big part of it comes from the uh, at times eerie, at other times driving uh, guitar work done by Neil Young. But this gets us into the thing we're going to skip because we haven't seen it, which is year of the horse, the concert documentary, which neither of us have seen. Yes. Uh, I hear uh, some people say it's actually pretty bad. I know that either Siskel or Ebert listed as the worst movie they saw that year, which is noteworthy. Um, but I did want to use this opportunity actually. So we haven't seen year of the horse. We're not going to talk about it. Obviously I did want to talk about, I mean, you, you discussed Neil Young's work on dead man, Jim Jarmusch, his use of music is often very interesting and, and I mean, he works with musicians frequently and John Lurie did the music for stranger than paradise and down by law. And Tom Waits did the, the music for night on earth and where Jarmish chooses to have music. The type of music that he has is often very interesting because they're not soundtracks in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily used to heighten emotion mm-hmm. or manipulate the audience. It's just there. It really is just meant to, to underscore and underline things but not really in that overt of a, of a way. Well, I look forward to talking about our next film because it's a definitely leap forward or, or a different direction in terms of yes, music I'd used. Yes, I'd say it's that. With 1999's 
Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, uh, Jarmusch used the music of the Rizza, mm-hmm. who I think would go on to do Kill Bill, uh, the music for Kill, for Kill Bill. Yeah. But, um, I mean, th- th- this is the first time that he's, uh, y- y- you know, used uh, hip-hop. Yeah. Um, and also, this is, Ghost Dog is a, is a change for him in a lot of other ways too. I mean, the whole, that whole first stretch of movies, permanent vacation, strange in the paradise down by law and mystery train and even night on earth have, are, are sort of in the same, uh, aesthetic milieu. Um, and, and, you know, of the, the, uh, <clears throat> Americana or, you know, his own personal, um, uh, version of Americana and, and, and this, 40s through 60s hipster music now we've got um a a very american crime film but Mm -hmm. uh influenced by um both uh japanese samurai uh um uh, culture i guess Mm -hmm. um and also by um the films of uh uh jean-pierre melville Mm -hmm. um in 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 a lot of ways you know i mean i mean uh, obviously, the Samurai is an yeah. influence on Ghost Dog, the way of the Samurai. They're both hitman movies about people who aren't Japanese samurais but live by that sort of code. And I think it's it's. Int- I mean, uh, Night on Earth had you know Winona Ryder and Jenna Rollins, and no- both of whom are you know a big deal. Um, but aside from that, Jarmusch does not really, up until that point, had not really like. And and jo- and Johnny Depp, you know, mm-hmm. but um, he hadn't really cast his his movies with like bona fide movie actors, and he's starting to move in that direction. And uh, but that's the thing; even Johnny Depp was well known, but he is not Johnny Depp now, right? Um, yeah, he because at this point he was uh, he, he was known for doing things, I guess, sort of quirkier things like like dead man you know he'd done yeah it was, it was the year after and, uh ed wood ed, yeah okay you know um but this was before the star making turn in nick of time but <laughs> uh but i think probably the biggest star he had worked with at the time was probably winona Ryder, who that was mm-hmm. the peak of her um, well there's one uh, another uh similarity between dead man and, and ghost dog dead man used robert mitchum and ghost dog uses henry silva yeah uh and i like that sort of um it's uh again this it's it's telling about about jim jarmusch the thing i talked about about him being um less a part of the like fringe culture mm-hmm. um that he sometimes appears you know to to be this like uh, uh outsider filmmaker but clearly have respect for the history of even American Hollywood golden age yeah. classics by putting people like Robert Mitchum and Henry Silva mm-hmm. in your movies. And I, I, I don't know what happened. Is it people like Johnny Depp, Winona Ryder, Jenna Rollins, and, and now Forrest Whitaker for ghost dog. Um, do you think he started to get a slightly larger budget and so started to seek out stars or do you think stars caught on to who he was and started seeking him out, or was it probably both? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I know um, the the rumor is that he wrote Winona Ryder's character for Winona Ryder. Okay. But, I mean, given who she was and who she hung, hung out with in the early 90s, mm-hmm. um, 
she would probably have wanted to work with someone cool like right. like Jim Jarmusch. Um, uh, the 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 stories I've heard about the about Jarmusch and Forrest Whitaker coming together is that he he wanted Forrest Whitaker for the role and uh, uh, Forrest Whitaker it tur- like didn't even tell him until like it was almost time to shoot that he was already actually kind of into samurai stuff and like mm-hmm. owned samurai swords. Which let me ask you this: Are you at all surprised by that? You know what I think. I'm not entirely sure there's anything you could tell me about Forrest Whitaker that would surprise me. <laughs> I think he is capable of being a million different things. Yeah. Yeah. He does kind of give off that vibe. Yeah. Uh, but it's, a, I mean, it's a fantastic performance and it's almost, um, Jarmusch and Forrest Whitaker is maybe because he, um, had never had uh, a black lead mm-hmm. before, uh, un- unless you count the one character in the mystery train, the third vignette, um, who I still don't think of him as the lead of that. Right. Um, uh, but it's not something you would have thought of, but it's something that makes so much sense because they both have that, uh, um, sort of, uh, is it, is it laconic? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. is that the pronunciation of the word? That's one of the words I tend to read more than I say, but, uh, they both have that same approach. Yeah. Uh, you know, to either filmmaker or filmmaking or acting. Yeah. And Forrest Whitaker has always been a fascinating actor to me because he does, he really does give that impression of, I'm sorry to use the phrase. It seems almost dismissive. The gentle giant. Like, um, and I actually, I met Forrest Whitaker when he came into blockbuster. Uh Um, and, uh, like very gracious very friendly because he was one of the people that came in that's like i should probably say something to forrest whitaker because i really at the time last king of scotland i think had just come out but i hadn't seen it yet um no i had seen it that's right i think he had just won his oscar now that i think about it um but i specifically brought up his performance in a movie called smoke which Mm -hmm. i thought he was wonderful in and the minute i said it like because he does not seem approachable but the minute i said it he just with like the quietest sweetest voice Mm -hmm. he's just like Oh, thank you. That's really nice of you. Thanks. And that, and it's just like, oh, Forrest Whitaker, I could just hug you. Um, <laughs> but I think, and, and I think, I think Jarmus saw in that, like the, the quiet yet hulking presence. I think he saw real potential there. Um, and yeah. And just the, the way of approaching filmmaking from a very minimalist, uh, point of view. And I, I don't, um, want to get too like political or sociological with it because I think um, Jim Jarmusch himself likes to include but bury that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you think of uh, an American film about a uh, black character who's a gangster or involved in gang activities, Forrest Whitaker's character in Ghost Dog is not the character you think of no. at all. You know, I mean, he's... Um, I mean, uh, so so many movies about uh, black gangsters, you know, uh, Boys in the Hood and Menace Society, so much of it is about, like, um, irrational people or hotheads, you know, or uh, that that sort of um, people getting in over their heads, you know, or, or, or being roped in by circumstances, you know. Uh, uh, this is the most, like, rational, calm, collected you know, above the fray character that you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and it's the more established, I guess, Italian gangsters. We're used to seeing, mm-hmm. I mean, Italian gangsters are often, uh, presented in American film as being more, um, more like that, more 
collected, more not necessarily reasonable, but it, it's it's telling that in an Italian, in in like a Scorsese film, there's the hothead character of the Joe, of Joe Pesci or what have you, right? And then there's like Paul Paul, Paul Sorvino and Robert De Niro who like yeah. are much more reserved, even if they are like De Niro is not exactly a stable person in Goodfellas. Uh, but well, I mean, they're organized. Yes, they're more organized. Exactly. Um, and they're the, I mean, it's a violent film, but they're the comic relief in this movie. The, yeah. The Italians. And I think maybe cause it's, I, it's, I haven't seen that film in, in years. And I remember not really caring for it at the time, but I think I've changed as a film watcher. And, uh, and I think now, if I were to rewatch it, I would like it a lot more because I recently rewatched The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Kind of ha- like thinking back on Ghost Dog, it kind of has that vibe. Like the mob is pretty, it's just a bunch of guys. They're not super smart and they just kind of do stuff and see what happens. And then the main, the main character now in uh, Killing the Chinese Bookie, he's certainly not a not a professional killer or anything but uh but he's very much kind of outside their their world and so they don't totally know how to handle him and so i would say that in some ways jim jarmusch and john cassavetes are very similar filmmakers in their style and the way the angle at which they approach something like if they're going to do something within a genre it is not going to be a genre exercise by any stretch like they will make it their own and with when you look at Dead Man and you look at Ghost Dog, I think you you really get that. All right, um, let's m- move on. Um, moving forward and backward to yeah. coffee and cigarettes. Uh, we should have mentioned that it was, I think, between Strangers in the Paradise and Down by Law when he started making the coffee and cigarettes shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, which, for those who don't know or haven't seen it, it's just. Um, Vignettes, there's that word again, uh, that all center around um, two or sometimes more people right. um, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. Yes. Um, what do you think of coffee and cigarettes? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I rewatched it for this uh, episode, and the reason I rewatched it is because I knew I'd be able to watch it in segments. Because <laughs> that's what it is. It's 11 uh-huh. short films. Um, and I knew... That like I'm probably this is not going to hold up. I remember liking it at the time when I saw it, 2003, um, and I was like, this is probably not going to hold up. And then I watched it, and it does hold up. In fact, I think I like it more now than when I saw it. Is that right? Yeah, um, much to my surprise, and because I think because I had I watched Stranger Than Paradise before it, like directly before it, uh-huh. and then I and so I start and so it had, that had sort of jump started my thinking of Jim Jarmusch again. And then when I saw coffee and cigarettes, not all of the, not all the scenes work completely, but it fits in totally with what he does, which is he, because in pretty much every scene you have a conflict, you have somebody who wants something or just has a problem, whether, (laughs) whether they just naturally have the problem and resentment, like in the Kate Blanchett, uh, cousins, uh, right. scene or and that's one I always forget about that's a good one it's a it's a very good one or the Iggy Pop Tom Waits scene where Tom Waits is just looking to be offended at all times and so you have the conflict and you have what what I found interesting because much like Down by Law or Night on Earth you have people thrown together 
out of necessity. I mean, the characters in Down My Law, they don't need to be put in a jail cell, but they, they didn't opt to be there. And then in Night, in Night on Earth, I mean, these characters don't opt to be in this person's cab specifically. Mm-hmm. They just needed a cab, and this is the one they wound up in, and now they have somewhere to go. What I like about Coffee and Cigarettes is that these characters are somewhat bound by social convention. And, and the idea of sitting down and having coffee and sharing a cigarette, like, first off, caffeine and nicotine are addictive. So you are somewhat forced. If you are addicted to it, you are forced to do it. Mm-hmm. So I have to do this. And as, as I remember you telling me when you, when you got to talk to John Malkovich, it was over a cigarette. Uh-huh. You know, like that sort of thing can actually bond people together. And you hear with alcohol. And Ray like, Winstone was also over a cigarette. There you go. And so like, and you hear people with, mm-hmm. with, with alcohol that they like, or, or uh, like I know a lot of people who, had their pot friends and then they quit <laughs> smoking pot and they're like, Oh, never mind. And they, and they just kind of left them completely. Um, and, and I think just these, like these, uh, these things that don't start out as addictions, but they come addictions, they, they become addictions. And then we are sort of bound by them and they create odd bedfellows, uh-huh. but there's, and so often these characters, and because, like I said, social convention, sitting down having coffee or lunch mm-hmm. is very much like, okay, let's do this and exchange niceties even though I may not actually care for this person. And pretty much every scene is like that except maybe the last one. Yeah. Uh, I want to move on actually because okay. we're – but I do want to talk about one thing that interests me with, with coffee and cigarettes is that um, so many of the characters like uh, – I mean Iggy Pop is great in that, especially mm-hmm. he's – Iggy Pop, like cutting himself on stage, crazy Iggy Pop, and he's such a sweetheart in yeah. that thing. It's there's so much, so much of the cool characters, like Jack White is revealed to be a big nerd. Yeah. You know, there's so much disarming of them. Um, uh, but again, I think you see some of Jarmusch's uh, fascination with black culture that the black characters still get to be pretty cool. Like the RZA and the Jizza are yeah. still really cool. Oh yeah, um, and, and the um, the guy from Coffee and Cigarettes, the guy from uh, Mystery Train, the other uh, mm-hmm. desk clerk, uh, along with Screaming Jay Hawkins, you know, uh, he's, he's the one who goes off on Elvis Presley. Is is that is that right? Well, it's or it's he, he and his scene. sister, right? And they're twins. And then Steve Buscemi plays their waiter, right? And uh, and yes, they go off on uh, you know Elvis stealing uh, music from black people and that yeah. sort of thing. So yeah, so I. I I'm, I, I'm not entirely crazy about coffee and cigarettes. I don't know that I would want to sit down and watch all of it from beginning to end again. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, I, I think uh, apart from Jim Jarmusch or anything, the Steve Coogan from Merlina one is kind of perfect. That is a beautiful little film. And I mean, Steve Coogan is wonderful. I like that his general persona is I'm an asshole. I don't know if he is or not. Mm-hmm. So there's that, but then Alfred Molina, he has such a wonderful, I mean, speaking of a sweetness, um, Alfred Molina, he just says like, you know, uh, Steve Coogan says, I, I want to know what it is you, you want from me because Alfred Molina has revealed that they are cousins from a very distant past. And, um, and Alfred Molina's like, I just want you to, you know, acknowledge this and just recognize that it's pretty amazing and, and love me. <laughs> and it's just and it's such a wonderful delivery and it's that's the thing is there's enough there are some scenes it's like mm, that's not the best but when you view the thing as a whole 
There are some slumps. There are some wonderful moments, and it ends on a very in a very sweet scene mm-hmm. between uh, Bill Rice and Taylor Mead, and and it's just uh, so I'd say but, give it a, watch it again and just try to. Of course, there are vignettes and they're they're all separate scenes, but if you view it as a whole and then view it as part of the tapestry of Jim Jarmusch's work overall, yeah. I think it I think it fits really well. But there are also, and I think tellingly in some of the more recently produced ones, there are some of the um, dry and ponderous things that will... You haven't seen Limits of Control, right. but um, there, there are there are segments in Coffee and Cigarettes that aren't funny at all. Right. And those are the ones I have something of a problem with, but that's a little sneak peek of what we'll talk about when we get to Limits of Control. So let's uh, move on then into our uh, the penultimate film, and the one that you are excited to talk about because mm-hmm. you are a big fan, uh, n- 2005's yeah. uh, Broken Flowers. Yes. Uh, well, you know what? I- I'll-, I'll let you, since you have more to say, let you have it in a second. Uh, I, I want to talk about um, uh, something we've been talking about, which is his use of music. And f- clearly in a lot of... Uh, in a lot of ways, just doing whatever music he's into at the time, mm. you know, uh, be it be it uh, Tom Waits or or Elvis or or the RZA, mm-hmm. you know, or Neil Young. Um, the the music of Bro- Broken Flowers was very uh, uh, of the moment in terms of what uh, hip music fans were into mm-hmm. in the mid two thousands, which is this. Um, uh, uh, weird strain of Ethiopian jazz mm-hmm. that had uh, um, had existed in like the I guess the sixties and seventies, um, and was for some reason coming to light about that time. And I was uh, and continued to be one of those people who was interested in that movement and listened to a lot of that stuff. And that's um, it, it's it's fantastic music. Um, would you agree that it's great music? Yeah, I love it. You have that soundtrack, I do. right? Um, I think we used to, uh, on at least one occasion for our live shows used it as house music. Yeah, and it works surprisingly well. Yeah, um, uh, but it's a thing that uh, it's going to sound insulting. It's a thing that a lot of film school students would do, and that I was certainly guilty I, of doing. I did just it? Yeah, in using whatever music I happen to be into at the time um, in, in in my films. You know, the, uh, you'll find if you were to go back to my student films, you'll find a lot of Vic Chestnut because I had discovered him about that 2000 2001 2002 by that time um, tyler why is there uh delta blues in uh <laughs> in this christmas film yeah right um but uh it doesn't seem like he jim jumbers is the type who makes a film and then puts in this music that he likes it seems like whatever's whatever he's into at the time is actually informing the film itself. That's why everything works so well. Very much so. I think, I think he does really use it to set the tone, but I think it's entirely possible that he shot it with this music in mind. Yeah. Or wrote it while listening to that music. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think he's somebody who's influenced, influenced greatly by the music that he listens to. And so, yeah, I don't think there's anything arbitrary to it at all. Um, so yeah, Broken Flowers is a film that uh, I absolutely love. Um, I think Down by Law is my favorite, and I think a close second is Broken Flowers. Yeah, um, and it's just it's interesting because at the time that at the time that it was released on DVD, I was working at a blockbuster, and 
This was Bill Murray's film right after Lost in Translation. Mm-hmm. And so some people watched Lost in Translation and didn't really like it and didn't really understand it. Not to imply that I fully understand it, by the way. Um, I know the things that I like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like watching... Uh, Wait, do I like that more than you, Lost in Translation? No, I think I like it more than you. Well, I love it, so I think we well, might I love like it too. It. Okay, we both like it. I'm just saying, I probably like it more. All right, fine. So, um, but I remember this uh, couple walking through Blockbuster, and they arrive at Lost in Translation, and she goes, "She goes, oh, Bill Murray," and he's like, "He goes, oh, don't bother. It's a piece of shit. It's not about anything." And they move <laughs> on. And part of me is like, "Well, I can't act. I mean, aside from it being a piece of shit, I can't really argue with him." Um, <laughs> but then, Broken Flowers came out. And a lot of the same, like, I would talk with customers about it, and they would say, like, oh, I hated it. You know, he just has that same hangdog expression on his face, just like Lost in Translation. I don't like what, is, what he's doing these days. And then, of course, I think, I think actually he had done, I think he had done Lost in Translation, and then I think... Garfield? <laughs> it would have been about that time, right? It would have been probably around that time. But I, I think um, Life Aquatic... Okay. Was I think four? That's two thousand four. Yeah. Okay, and then Bro- uh, Broken Flowers two thousand five. So he was kind of going in that in that right. vein, and uh, but so by but Broken Flowers, I mean, people say like he, he is so expressionless that they just couldn't really relate to him at all. And I I don't necessarily agree. Um, I think he is rather stone faced at times. But and he, I also think he is his character is difficult to relate to by the character's own design. I think he's set up his life oh, yeah. in such a way. I mean, that's that it's hard to, to get in or to know him unless you're, you're Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. And, and I think what's, what really works is that his character is something of a blank slate, but he's also viewed to be like a real ladies man. And you're like, how did this happen? And it's interesting. You then see, there are several moments when he he actively and you can see it engaging. You can see the mechanism. He turns on the charm, and damned if he isn't the most charming guy. <laughs> like he sees, uh, I think he's like hitting on uh, a woman in like a flower shop, and you just kind of, and he's not even really hitting on her. It's just this is what I do, uh-huh. and and it's really great. And you see a definite contrast, and you see the way he deals with. Um, uh, I think the characters. Uh, I think Jeffrey Wright's character's name is Winston. Um, when he's dealing with Winston's children, like he can play up the the charm as well, but the rest of the time he is quite cold. Um, but you also see how he is with the, his past girlfriends, and you can sort of figure out what it is, what their relationship was like, and and it really does go to the theme that I've been talking about, which is he's a guy who I mean it's kind of an an obvious theme now, but Jarmish has been doing it his whole career. But a guy who, you know, he's, he's a bit of a womanizer. He's got money. He's going to be fine. And his life is whatever he wants it to be. Um, but he also feels, of course, detached from, uh, from humanity. And his latest girlfriend is walking out on him. And he discovers that, oh, he might have a son, but he doesn't know who sent him one of his girlfriends sent him the letter, uh, which of his girlfriends sent him the letter. So he and Winston arranged this 
road trip. I mean, he's flying and he rents cars, but like go on this road trip and visit all of them to see if he can figure out which one did it. And what I find interesting is that he's a character that you can't read based on what he says or how he looks. You have to judge him by his actions. And that's mm-hmm. the thing is people said like, oh, I, I never knew why he was going on this. And I was like, well, he clearly is looking for some kind of connection. He feels probably unfulfilled or incomplete and he's looking for that. Like, well, he never says any of that. It's like, that's true. In fact, the whole time he only ever complains to Winston and talks about how stupid this whole thing is. But he never stops. He always keeps going. And I feel like that's worth noting. And then at the end, spoilers, he goes back home and he meets a kid that he thinks might be his. But then when he broaches the subject, it's clear this is not his child. Um, <laughs> and so – and the kid gets – like freaks out and gets up and runs. And then he runs after him like at full speed. He doesn't want to let this kid get away because he still thinks it's it's his kid. And so he's just like – I remember at the time I, on a website I had written, like, he just, like, it's a mad dash toward companionship and relationship um, because we've never seen him be this active towards anything. I mean, he still goes on this trip, but he complains the whole time. Now he drops all of his pretensions. He drops all of all of his facades, and he just he just totally goes for it, and, uh, and, he, whined, and he can't catch the kid, and so he just stops and then and you and you feel like oh that was his last hope and then you see a car drive by with bill murray's actual son looking at him and they do look very similar and he sees him and just kind of narrows his eyes at him and and then the movie's over and i like that because it goes back to what i've been saying is that like jim jarmusch clearly i think loves his characters wants good things for them still understands that they are governed by their natures and their instincts but still offers, I think, a glimmer of, of hope. And it's just such a wonderful, complete film. And it, often very funny as well. Yeah. And if you are bummed that Tyler spoiled the end for you, there's plenty of treasures to be found in this film, even if you know what happens at the end. Yeah. Such as Chris Bauer yeah. uh, being in it. Um, there is, uh, as unglamorous as the murders in dead man are there is a completely unglamorous bit of full frontal nudity yeah. in broken flowers that's more sad and weird than than sexy um, there is a wonderful cameo by christopher mcdonald um, i haven't seen it in so long yeah um, he he plays uh, what's her name uh francis conroy oh that's right francis, uh, that's one of my favorite scenes yeah he's her husband and he's talking about uh like he's railing about oil or something he's like He's like, you can't, you can't drink oil. And <laughs> Bill Murray's like, well, you got that right. <laughs> and, just, and it's, uh, it, it is very funny. Um, also, the, what I like about the Francis Conroy section, and we should wrap up soon, um, is that uh, you don't often see Jim Jarmusch working in suburbia. Mm-hmm. Um, and he manages to not be condescending or, yeah. or too cool for school about it. He makes that suburban location in that house look uh, real and recognizable and lived in and honest. And I think he might be, uh, you know, he might see Christopher McDonald's character uh, a little mocking, but, and I think he sees uh, a real sadness in Francis Conroy's character, but it's still a loving sadness. It's not a condescending, like, well, that's what it is when you go to the suburbs. It's nothing like that. Um, so, uh, moving on.
yeah, moving on to the limits of control, which I won't spend a lot of time on. It it's is unfortunate we're ending with this. Uh, it's but uh, you know what? I, that's 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 mean. I think uh, maybe I am too hard on the film because when I saw it. I didn't leave the theater hating it. I, mm-hmm. I, mean, I left the theater actually thinking I should see that again. Uh, but not... It wasn't I should see it again because I had such a grand time, but because, like, this is um, a different Jarmusch than the one that I love, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if it's bad or if I just need to spend more time with it. And I think Jim Jarmusch... I mean, look at the episode we just did. He's earned that respect Mm -hmm. that we should give him the benefit of the doubt even when he makes something like the limits of control that despite having bill murray in it is not funny at Mm. all Uh, i think i mean there's some sort of i mean john hurt is sort of delightfully weird in it um and i i do think that it's worth watching on its own terms is it is it i'm sorry to interrupt is it trying to be funny and failing or is it just not trying it's, it's like those I use the word again when we talked about coffee and cigarettes, the more ponderous uh, vignettes in coffee and cigarettes. It's But it's okay for a film to be ponderous. Yeah, but it's just, I guess, it's hard not to compare it against his other work. Yeah. And there's also something, I mean, uh, that sort of um, verging on metaphysical ponderousness is great in an 11-minute, 10, 11-minute segment. Yeah. When it's a feature-length film, it does start it does tend to drag on okay um and a part of it as i said when we talked about not on earth i'm not a big fan of that uh, lead actor i can't remember how to say, it's a french name it's isaac something yeah um uh I, i'm just not a fan of him yeah i mean he's not a bill murray who can do uh you know work wonders with uh almost no expression yeah he just almost has no expression and there's nothing more to it uh for me than that but um I, I do think if you like jarmusch you should see the limits of control um but i'm not saying that's something you should go out and rent for movie night <laughs> you yeah. know the way that uh even you know broken flowers uh is yeah it's almost like you certainly wouldn't want that to be anybody's entry point into jim yeah. jarmusch what would yeah. you say is a good entry point for him um i think Honestly, even though I um, was a little bit uh, slightly hard on it, uh, I think Mystery Train is maybe a great way to go in. I, that would be my vote as well. Because um, it's it's three short stories, so if you don't like one, there's going to be another one yeah. soon. It's funny, and it's weird, and it's uh, beautiful in the Jim Jarmusch, Robbie Mueller way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has great music and cool people talking about Elvis. Yeah. Uh I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, Mystery Train or the upcoming St. Louis film that I'm sure he's got no in the works. Um, to, as I said, someone, if you know Jim Jarmusch or if you know a way to get a hold of him, tell him he's got to set a film in St. Louis so that Down by Law, Mystery Train and this third film will be a Mississippi River trilogy. With sev- not, I mean, with several movies in between. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so to sum up, um, part of me, I, I feel like I didn't do a good enough job of like summarizing what what I what I love about him. I mean, I kept oh, sure you did. On it was stuff, just it's just that it was eight hours ago. Fair enough, we did record this in seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For those who uh, with keen ears, sharp ears, or maybe it's incredibly obvious, but we uh, 
recorded this across over the course of a day when we also recorded other episodes with guests in between so there are a number of edits in this episode so yeah. i could be saying this and everybody could be like yeah no shit it sounds really well, I think, obvious i think but- it would be most obvious to those listening with uh, tweaked audio earbuds sure it yeah. makes everything a lot clearer yeah do we not mention that tweaked audio dot com sells these great earbuds i i don't remember if we did and i'm not joking i literally don't remember if we um, did tweakedaudio.com is where you go for uh professional level uh, earbuds at um at, at reasonable prices in all sorts of uh styles and colors uh, give me an example blue blue uh, um there's also the wood ones uh, which uh, i'm going to keep mentioning until bruce sends me uh, <laughs> a sample of the wood ones Indeed. um but uh i mentioned they're reasonably priced and that's true no matter what mm-hmm. if you want to just go and buy them I'm yeah. not going to stop you, but let me tell you a little secret. Okay. You, you go, you pick out, uh, your, uh, all the pairs you need for you and your, and your loved ones, mm-hmm. you know, uh, never uh, too young to get, to get a kid into tweaked audio. Yeah. And time new year is right around the corner. Um, so, uh, you, it, once you've got them all in your, uh, checkout, your shopping cart thing at checkout, put in the offer code pretension. You get a third off, 33% off. That's not, look, a lot of places you get 5, 10, 15, 20, even a quarter off. Yeah. That's great for them. That's it, not how we do it. Yeah. No, at tweakedaudio.com, if you know us, Tyler and David, and you know the offer code pretension, yeah. you get a third off. Yeah. Screw yeah. those other guys. Exactly. With their, with their fake little discounts. Like, oh yeah, you get 10% off. Guess what? They probably already marked it up 10%. Right. Yes. Bruce doesn't pull those kind of shenanigans. Right. And even how about this? Let me suggest this. Even if he does mark it up a little bit, I guarantee you he's not marking up thirty three percent. You're yeah. saving money, dude. Yeah, but he doesn't mark it up at all. At all. He's. Re- I think I'm, he's probably operating at a loss. Such right. Such a philanthropist is is Bruce. Well, you don't want people to now you know pay full price and we get none of it. You know, doing a favor to him. No, no, no one's going to do that. This is capitalism. Damn you're right. Gonna, it you, is. Yeah. You, you, you're. You're going to use the offer code. Capitalism works. <laughs> so um, that's where you go for for um, uh, discounted but high-quality earbuds, where you go for uh, high-quality and free movie reviews and other features and articles, as well as episodes of this podcast, is BattleshipPretension.com uh, for... Uh, all complaints about the show can be directed to David at BattleshipPretension.com. All praise of the show can be directed to Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com. Now we're talking. <laughs> you can follow David on Twitter at The Pretension. Follow Tyler at More Lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at MoreThanOneLesson.com. And you can find uh, my other podcast, the weekly television review show, Previously On, at PreviouslyOnShow.com. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. uh, And thanks for listening for the last five years. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.